Chapter 14 of Post Haste. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Del de Pinaroles. Post Haste by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 14 Formation of the Pegaway Literary Association and Other Matters. Close to the residence of Solomon Flint, there was a small outhouse or shed, which formed part of the letter-carrier's domain, but was too small to be sublet as a dwelling, and too inconveniently situated in a back court to be used as an apartment. It was, therefore, devoted to the reception of lumber. But Solomon, not being a rich man, did not possess much lumber. The shed was therefore comparatively empty. When Philip Maylands came to reside with Solomon, he was allowed to use this shed as a workroom. Phil was by nature a universal genius, a jack-of-all-trades, and formed an exception to that rule about being master of none, which is asserted, though not proved, by the proverb, for he became master of more than one trade in the course of his career. Solomon owned a few tools, so that carpentry was naturally his first attempt, and he very soon became proficient in that. Then, having discovered an old clock, among the lumber of the shed, he took to examining and cleaning its interior of an evening after his work at the post office was done. As his mechanical powers developed, his genius for invention expanded, and soon he left the beaten tracks of knowledge and wandered into the less trodden regions of fantasy. In all this, Phil had an admirer and sympathizer in his sister May, but May's engagements, both in and out of the sphere of her telegraphic labors, were so numerous that the boy would have had to pursue his labors in solitude if it had not been for his friend Peter Pax, whose admiration for him knew no bounds, and who, if he could, would have followed Phil like his shadow. As often as the little fellow could do so, he visited his friend in the shed, which they named Pegaway Hall. There he sometimes assisted Phil, but more frequently held him in conversation, and commented in a free and easy way on his work for his admiration of Phil was not sufficient to restrain his innate insolence. One evening Phil Malins was seated at his table, busy with the works of an old watch. Little Pack sat on the table swinging his legs. He had brought a pipe with him and would have smoked, but Phil sternly forbade it. It's bad enough for men to fumigate their mouths, he said with a smile on his lips and a frown in his eye. But when I see a little thing like you trying to make yourself look manly by smoking, I can't help but thinking of a monkey putting on the boots and helmet of a guardsman. The boots and helmet look grand, no doubt, but that makes the monkey seem all the more ridiculous. Your pipe suggests manhood, Pax, but you look much more like a monkey than a man when it's in your mouth. How severe you are tonight, Phil, returned Pax, putting the pipe, however, in his pocket. Where did you graduate now, at Cambridge or Oxford? "'Cause when my oldest boy is big enough, I'd like to send him where he acquires such an amazing flow of eloquence.' Phil continued to rub the works of the watch, but made no reply. "'I say, Phil,' observed the little fellow, after a thoughtful pause. "'Well?' "'Don't it strike you, sometimes, that this is a queer sort of world?' "'Yes, I've often thought that, and it has struck me, too, that you are one of the queerest fish in it. Come, Phil, don't be cheeky. I'm in a sedate frame of mind tonight, and want to have a talk in a philosophical sort of way of things in general. Well, Pax, go ahead. I happen to have been reading a good deal about things in general of late, 
though perhaps between us we may grind something out of a talk. Just so, them's my ideas precisely. There's nothing, said Pax, thrusting both hands deeper into his trousers pockets and swinging his legs more vigorously. Nothing like a free and easy chat for developing the mental powers. But I say, what a fellow you are for going ahead. Seems to me that you're always either working at queer contrivances or reading. You forget, Pax, that I sometimes carry telegraphic messages. Ha, true. Then you and I are bound together by the cords of a common duty. Perhaps I should say an uncommon duty, all things considered. Among other things, returned Phil, I have found out by reading that there are two kinds of men in the world. The men who push and strive and strike out new ideas, and the men who jog along easy, on the let-be-for-let-be principle, and who grow very much like cabbages. You're right there, Phil, and yet cabbages ain't bad vegetables in their way, remarked Pax with a contemplative cast of his eyes to the ceiling. Well, continued Phil gravely, I shouldn't like to be a cabbage. Which means, said the other, that you'd rather be one of the fellows who push and strive and strike out new ideas. Phil admitted that such were his thoughts and aspirations. Now, Pax, he said, laying down the tool with which he had been working and looking earnestly into his little friend's face, something has been simmering in my mind for a considerable time past. You'd better let it out then, Phil, for fear it should bust you, suggested Pax. Come now, stop chaffing for a little and listen, because I want your help, said Phil. There was something in Phil's look and manner when he was in earnest which effectually quelled the levity of his little admirer the appeal to him for aid also had a sedative effect as phil went on pax became quite as serious as himself this power of pax to suddenly discard levity and become interested was indeed one of the qualities which rendered him powerfully attractive to his friend the fact is continued phil I have set my heart on forming a literary association among the telegraph boys. A what? A literary association. That is, an association of those boys among us who want to read and study and discuss and become knowing and wise. The daring aspirations suggested by this proposition were too much for little Pax. He remained silent, open-mouthed and eyed, while Phil went on quietly to expound his plan. There is a capital library, as you know, at the post office, which is free to all of us, though many of us make little use of it, more's the pity, but we don't require a library of our own, though we may come to that, too, some day, who knows? Sure it wouldn't be the first time that great things have come out of small beginnings, if all have read be true. But it's not only books we would be after. What we want, Pax, is to be organized, made a body of, and when we've got that done we shall soon put soul into the body, but with debates and readings and lectures and maybe a soiree now and then with music and speeches to say nothing of tea and cakes as phil maylands warmed with his subject his friend became excited he ceased to chaff and raise objections and finally began to see the matter through phil's rose-colored glasses capital he exclaimed heartily it'll do phil it'll work like everything else you put your hand to but here his chubby little visage elongated how about fun nothing in this world gets along without fun and now we've no place to meet in. We must content ourselves with funds of humor to begin with, returned Phil, resuming his work on the watch. As for a meeting room, wouldn't this do? Pegaway Hall is not a bad place, and quite enough room in it when the lumber's cleared out of the way. Then, as to members, we would only admit those who showed a strong desire to join us. Just so, who showed literary taste, like you and me, suggested Pax. 
"'Exactly so,' said Phil. "'For, you see, I don't want to have our society flourished about in the eyes of people as a public post-office affair. We must make it private and very select.' "'Yes, uncommon select,' echoed Pax. "'It would never do, you know,' continued the other, "'to let in every shallow young snipe that wanted to have a lark and make game of the affair. We shall make our rules very stringent.' "'Of course,' murmured Pax with a solemn look tremendously stringent for first offences of any kind a sousin with dirty water for second offences a whopping and a fine for third dismissal with ears and nose chopped off or other such mutilation as committee of the house may invent but phil who do you think would be suitable men to make members of well let me see said phil again laying down his tools and looking at the floor with a thoughtful air there's long poker he's a long-legged good-hearted fellow fond of the newspapers yes put in pax poker will do for one he'd be a capital member long and thin as a literary character ought to be and pliable too we could make almost anything of him except a fire screen or a tablecloth then there's big jack he's got strong sedate habits too fond of punning objected phil a little punishment in the mutilation way would stop that said pax and there's jim brown rejoined phil he's a steady enthusiastic fellow and little Greg. He's about as impudent as yourself, Pax. Strange, isn't it, that it's chiefly little fellows who are impudent? Wouldn't it be strange if it were otherwise, retorted Pax with an injured look? As we can't knock people down with our fists, aren't we justified in knocking them down with our tongues? Then, continued Phil, there's George Granger and McNabb. Ah, uh, ain't he the boy for argufying to, interrupted Pax, and he'll meet his match in Sandy Todd. And there's Tom Blunter, and Jim Scroggins, and Lim Fleatherby, and Fat Collins, and bobby sprat oh exclaimed pax with a glowing countenance we've got lots of first-rate men among the message boys though there are some uncommon bad ones but we'll have none except true blues in our literary association the society thus planned was soon called into being for philip maylands was one of those who determined characters who carried their plans into execution with vigor and dispatch his first move was to seek counsel of mr sterling a city missionary the same who had directed George Aspel to the abode of Abel Bones on the night of that youth's visit to Archangel Court, with whom he had become acquainted on one of his visits to Miss Lillycrop. That good lady was a staunch ally and able assistant of many city missionaries, and did much service in the way of bringing them into acquaintance with people who she thought might be helpful to them, or get help from them. A mutual liking had sprung up between Mr. Antony Sterling and Phil on that occasion, which had ripened into friendship. "'You'll help us at our first meeting, won't you?' asked Phil, after they had talked the matter over. "'Yes, if you wish it,' replied Mr. Sterling. "'But I won't come at the beginning. I'll drop in towards the close, and won't say much. "'You'd best begin the work by yourselves. I'll come to your aid whenever you seem to require it. "'But have a care how you start, Phil. Whatever the other members may do, remember that you, as the originator of the association, "'are bound to lay the foundations for the blessing of God.' Phil did not neglect this all-important point, and having obtained permission from Solomon Flint to use the shed, the society was soon auspiciously commenced with a lively debate in Pegaway Hall as to the best method of conducting its own affairs. On this occasion, Philip Maylands proved himself to be an able organizer. Long Poker showed that he had not dabbled in newspapers without fishing up and retaining a vast amount of miscellaneous knowledge. Jim Brown roused the meeting to a pitch of enthusiasm almost equal to his own little griggs made stinging remarks all round and chaffed little pax with evident delight 
Macnab disputed with everybody. Sandy Todd argued and objected more or less to everything, while Tom Blunter, Jim Scroggins, Limp Leatherby, Pat Collins, and Bobby Spratt lent more or less effectual fire to the debate. Big Jack did not speak much. He preferred, as he said, to form a large audience, but if he might be permitted to offer an opinion, would suggest that less talk and more action might facilitate the despatch of business, and that they ought to try to emulate the House of Commons by allowing a little common sense to mingle with their discussion. As for Peter Pax, he assumed the role of peacemaker general. When the debaters seemed to be getting too warm, he rose to order, and in a calm, dignified manner commented on the conduct of the disputants with such ineffable insolence as to draw down their wrath on his devoted head, to the great delight of the other members. Thus he threw oil on the troubled waters, and, generally, kept the meeting lively. Finally the laws of the Pegaway Literary Association were fixed. The plans of meeting was arranged, and the whole thing fairly started. The society worked well for a time, but after the various members had done their best, as Pax said, to keep the pot boiling, it was felt and suggested that they should seek a little aid from without. A reading or lecture was proposed, seconded, and carried. Then came the question who should be asked to read or lecture. Macnab proposed that their chairman should endeavor to procure a lecturer and report to next meeting. Sandy Todd objected and proposed to many to consider the subject. Bill Malin said he had anticipated the demand and had already secured the promise of a lecturer, if the members chose to accept him. Name, name, cried several voices. Our excellent landlord, Solomon Flint, said Phil. You all know his admirable powers of memory and his profound knowledge of men and things. At least if you don't, you ought to, from Pax. And you may be sure he'll give us something good. And proverbial, said little Greg. Aye, Flint will certainly strike fire out of whatever he tackles, said Big Jack. Order, from Pax. When is he to give it, asked one. Won't fix the time just yet, said Phil. What's his subject, asked another. Can't say, not yet decided. With this uncertainty as to time and subject, the association was obliged to rest content, and thereafter the meeting was dissolved. We are grieved to be obliged to state that the society thus hopefully commenced came to a premature close at an early period of its career, owing to circumstances over which its members had no control. Some time before that sad event occurred, however, Solomon Flint delivered his discourse, and as some of the events of that memorable evening had special bearing on the issues of our tale, we shall recur to it in succeeding chapter. End of chapter 14. Recording by Adele de Pinerales.